thank you all very much for joining us this evening. This is um, the first evening event we've held in Brussels for Global Council in more than two and a half years, and it's the first ever event at our new office. So uh, delighted to welcome everyone. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. I know there have been strikes to brave and uh, many other competing demands on your time. Um, I'll allow um, our chairman, Lord Mandelson, to introduce our panel this evening and the topic of transatlantic the transatlantic partnership and its future. Um, I think it's a highly topical question that affects many of us who care about um, the success of our businesses, our economies, and ultimately our societies. Maybe though, Peter, I can hand over to you to introduce the discussion this evening um, and just say thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Well, Tom, thank you very much indeed. A round of applause for your wonderful new office. <laughs> I mean, you know, if I moved permanently to back to Brussels, I'd have quite a nice... I've got an eye on a room that you've got just over there, <laughs> which you call the library. I think we'll rename that as the chairman's room. Uh, I've already grown very attached to it. <laughs> Could you look a little happier, uh, the prospect that you're going to have your chairman moving in? Um, so welcome, everyone, uh, to this inaugural event. Um, of Global Council uh, Europe. And I think the topic that we're going to address, the transatlantic uh, partnership, is not only very topical, it's also become incredibly important given what else is happening in the rest of the world. Obviously, immediately in our own continent, in respect of Ukraine and its invasion by Russia, but also wider afield too. I think what we need to do uh, the three on the panel and everyone else, is basically to test the um, sort of widely held assumption in, in Brussels uh, and Washington that transatlantic cooperation, indeed the West, is back. Um, back as a geopolitical force, joined at the hip, singing from the same hymn sheet, uh, with lots of benefits from that rediscovered uh, alliance and unity cascading down into the benefit uh, of businesses and the rest of the economy um, uh, in Europe as well as the United States. So we need to test this. My own view um, is that the US and the EU uh, are indeed more in tune now than they've been for a very long time, um, even pre-Trump. Uh, to an extent, and that uh, we're very much on the same page with the same sentiments and the same objectives, but that doesn't necessarily translate always into exactly the same policies. Uh, so let's take a look at that, uh, not least because we're all realists in politics and we know that there are very strong domestic pressures uh, operating on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, uh, domestic pressures which are given more to uh, nationalism than multilateralism, uh, protectionism often more than free trade, uh, and making America great again, uh, as opposed to making us all in the West uh, better off, let alone the rest of the world. And the areas, of course, that exhibit oftentimes the most tension are trade uh, and regulatory approaches, uh, and now that is supplemented 
um, putting Russia aside for one moment, uh, by tensions over uh, China uh, as well. Now, our expert Global Council team, uh, who are here to comment on this and guide us through this, um, uh, Anna Martinez. Uh, Anna has led GC's European uh, policy practice throughout um, five years of highs and lows in the EU-US uh, relationship, uh, working with our clients to understand and anticipate uh, the agendas and the crisis responses emerging from um, our own institutions, EU institutions here, uh, and our member uh, states. Robert Etter over there is a refugee? No. <laughs> uh, uh, from the Biden administration. Um, why did you leave it? Oh, never mind, it's very nice. <laughs> anyway, it's very, very nice that you've joined us, uh, Robert. Um, but he, Robert, previously served in senior roles in uh, the Senate and House of Representatives uh, before joining the Biden administration. Um, and now he's a full-time director at Global Council. Uh, and Nico Zebik, uh, has more than a decade uh, of experience in political and policy analysis uh, and you worked for several years for the Hungarian uh, government, good luck with that, um, and is now uh, firmly now embedded in Global Council uh, as an associate director with us. So my questions in a sense stem from the key lesson of my time as Trade Commissioner um, that the uh, uh, that is that the United States is the EU's chief and most important ally, obviously, uh, but that our objectives and our ways of working need constantly to be refreshed uh, and renewed, and that's what's happening at the moment. If we're going to be able to put agreed policies into practice, so Anna, perhaps I can uh, start with you. I mean, perhaps the um, most eye-catching European response to President Trump's um, infamous uh, term in office and his um, capricious and often hostile attitude to Europe uh, and our institutions, uh, Europe's response was the establishment of a new doctrine called Open Strategic autonomy, and I still, for one, emphasise open as much as possible, uh, being a former trade commissioner. Sometimes I feel I'm trying to direct water uphill, but I'm not giving up. Um, I mean, the concept of open strategic autonomy hasn't been uh, renounced uh, 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 in any way. Um, uh, over the last two years, does does this autonomy mean that what actually Europe wants to do now um, is to reduce its dependence on American hard power and American technology? Otherwise, what could autonomy possibly mean? It's a good question because actually um, you say that there's been a push and I think there's definitely been a push because of COVID-19 in the first instance and now more recently because of the war in Ukraine. But actually, when you ask about the meaning of open strategic autonomy, I think it means different things to different member states. And it has shifted the meaning 
throughout the years. I, I feel like at the beginning when the concept was first put forward, it meant more the EU's autonomy from the US and China, whereas now the EU's dependency on uh, Russian gas is much more at the core. Um, and it still mentions, it, it still relates to China in that way. Uh, but I think it's important to to realize that the meaning does not is not the same for every member state. Um, but in the short term, what I think this means is that the EU will try or, or prioritize sovereignty from China and Russia, and that the US will maybe take less of a, a key role in that sense. And it's partly because uh, there's been a reapproachment with the Biden administration on certain policy areas like uh, climate change. Uh, and it was interesting to hear if, uh, you know, you, you listen to von der Leyen's uh, State of the EU speech that she spoke about our friends in the US. Um, I thought that was, that was an interesting point that she was trying to, 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 to make. Um, but the question, I think, is how the EU will manage to do this in practice, because the tools at its disposal treat third countries in the same way. So I think that's going to be an interesting challenge to, to okay. keep in mind. Let's get a, an American perspective then, Robert, uh, to, for example, the Trade and Technology Council, which was our idea. It was von der Leyen's proposal, uh, which your president took a little bit of time dragging his feet and agreeing to, if, you know, if I remember rightly. So what would you say, how would you characterize President Biden's sort of view uh, of the alliance, his allies uh, in, in, the rest of, in the rest of the world? I mean, he talks a lot about American leadership on the global stage. Does he mean literally American or does he mean Western or liberal democracies or with Europe as his chief uh, ally, um, except when it comes, of course, to trade and industrial policy when he becomes rather unilateralist and sort of rather selfish. He first seems to forget his allies. Is that fair or not fair? Well, I, I think that President Biden uh, really does view the EU as a critical partner. Uh, I think he's had to do a lot of uh, course correcting uh, from the prior administration. Uh, the U.S. has uh, rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, the U.S. has rejoined the World Health Organization. President Biden has uh, reaffirmed the U.S.'s commitment to NATO. Uh, we've had uh, events like the U.S.-EU summit last year. We've had, as you mentioned, the development of the, the Trade and Technology Council. Um, so I think that uh, President Biden really does recognize the importance of this relationship. He's taken some concrete actions in that direction. Of course, we've also had AUKUS in the defense field where Europe was sort of nudged out of the way. Well, it's not, you know, it's not perfect. It's not going to be perfect. Um, but it is an improvement. And he's always going to have um, competing, uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, domestic uh, issues. There's going to be uh, uh, various other issues he has to deal with. Uh, you know, we had uh, some misalignment on the uh, U.S.'s withdrawal from Afghanistan. Recently, uh, we enacted uh, in the U.S. some, for example, tax credits for electric vehicles uh, that really favor 
uh, vehicles uh, produced in the United States, batteries produced in the United States. I think uh, European countries view that as uh, disadvantaging European automakers, European battery makers. Uh, and that's an example of, of an area where we, you know, we may have a disconnect, we may have domestic priorities that don't uh, necessary, uh, necessarily align with the desire to strengthen the U.S.-EU relationship. Uh, so there will be issues, but uh, President Biden does view this as a very important partnership. And I think that uh, the, the list of items uh, I mentioned earlier are just illustrative of things that he's done to try to strengthen that and try to course correct from uh, remember where we were uh, the prior four years under President Trump. Couldn't forget them. Um, um, and Nico, let me ask you, if I may. Um, I mean, we're talking oftentimes about Europe in a rather sort of, if I can put it this way, Brussels, Paris and Berlin sense. Uh, but there is the rest of the European uh, Union. Um, uh, and uh, we're talking in areas about um, security, procurement, uh, the environment, all of which are areas where other member states have differing views. Um, and they can always sort of want to act rather more independently uh, than, than, than we would sometimes wish. Um, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, do you think Therefore, there can ever be one single European voice when it comes to the transatlantic relationship, uh, or is it more a choir singing with different voices? Well, obviously, the sea region has its own priorities when it comes to the transatlantic partnership. So. Uh, there is a wide consensus over the uh, advantages of belonging to the Western Alliance and, of course, NATO, especially now. But apart from the Baltic countries, who have always seen the US as the main guarantor of their existence, and um, let's mention Hungary, where the current leadership seemingly has given up on the democratic administration, we have to say that the uh, relationship um, seems to be more uh, transactional and more mixed. So I just give you two examples. One of them is um, energy security. Um, the US has been always a proponent of diversification of sources, and it has been criticizing the construction of Nord Stream 2. But when it came to, OK, then you should increase shipments of LNG, uh, there's been often uh, rather political commitments and not concrete actions. And now when we finally see LNG shipments uh, increasing, we, some might argue that it is because the elevated um, prices in the EU makes it profitable for energy companies in the US to, to do that. And it's not based on political commitment. Or another example, um, Many sea countries signed up to the US-led initiative of basically blocking Huawei from 5G developments across the region um, uh, based on national security arguments. But then when the question arose that, OK, who is going to foot the bill for filling the gap in digital infrastructure investments, it also stayed rather on the political uh, commitment side and not in concrete action. So it's, it's, it's pretty mixed 
picture of uh, uh, in, in different uh, areas. And if we talk about strategic autonomy, the arguments from the CE region side was always let's increase EU competitiveness at the worst stage. Um, but they imagined it by capitalizing on the dynamism of the CE region and they rejected um, all hints about protectionism of larger EU member states or to alienate, for example, a partner like the US. Hmm. Let me just ask you, I mean, obviously the Central and Eastern European member states of the European Union are that much closer uh, to that country which is invading uh, their neighbour uh, and a country that the European Union, um, I'm talking about Ukraine, has sort of always wanted to support, but not completely embrace, always with one eye, as I remember very rightly, on the big brother, mm. Russia, uh, and our desire to sort of support Ukraine up to the point where Putin might not want us to, basically. That's what, that's what the approach now, what's happened in a sense is the same sort of injection of purpose, unity and solidarity into the, into the Union that accession did in 2004 when I became a, a commissioner. And we demonstrated sort of great solidarity, freedom of movement in the budget, etc. Um, and it gave us a lot of impetus in a sense, the awful invasion of Ukraine has, you know, given us fresh impetus to stand together and to demonstrate that solidarity amongst us. But we know that this war is going to uh, progress almost certainly throughout the winter when the economic pain that it has brought is going to mount. Do you think that Europe's solidarity is going to prove durable? Is it going to be sustained beyond the winter uh, of pain that we're facing? Well, let me state first that I completely agree with you that um, um, recent events has not only invoked the memories of, of EU accession, but also 1989 and 1991 in many countries in the region. That's definitely true. Um, and the Baltics and, uh, and Poland feels absolutely vindicated in their long-held view that Russia is an existential threat to the Western alliance. So that is one side um, of it. But, um, but the economic hardship and the, the consequences of the war hit the immediate neighborhood the most. And there are different reactions to, to this. So there are populations who prove to be more resilient. I will just invoke um, Estonia, where inflation is already at 25%. Uh, but the population feels that it's a fair price to pay to resist the Russian aggression. But in some other countries, uh, economic instability causes political instability as well. And uh, Bulgaria is a good example where uh, the Western-facing uh, coalition government um, uh, lost a no-confidence vote in the summer, and uh, there will be uh, general elections in the coming weekend. It has been replaced by a Russian-leaning um, government? has not been replaced. Elections are coming um, in the next weekend. But like, the caretaker... Likely, likely to, I mean. Uh, but the caretaker government has indicated that they are going back to Gazprom 
to uh, possibly negotiate a long-term gas supply contract again because they just can't deal with the upcoming crisis in any other way. So there is definitely... Um, so they would claim that they're in the same bucket, really, as Hungary, that they have no option, that the sheer physical need to pretty much. bring so pipeline... We can argue that past decisions of uh, Bulgaria is similar to Hungary in a way as well, that they rather build gas storage facilities instead of securing uh, diversification of sources. So uh, we can argue whether these past decisions have been wise or, or, or led to um, you know, dire consequences now, but this is a situation, and yes, Bulgaria in a way argues that we do not have any other ways. They had some contracts uh, um, with possible contracts with, about LNG shipments with the US, but then at the end they f um, fall through. So they are not materializing, and this is what the government argues that the caretaker government, that we need to find different solutions. Okay, let me ask Robert, if I may, a similar question from an, a US perspective. I mean, by virtue of geography and energy self-sufficiency, you're pretty insulated from the impact uh, of the war. Um, uh, tell me how political bipartisan support for what America is doing uh, in and for the Ukrainian people, which is basically huge, and if the Americans were not there, um, I, I have no doubt Ukraine would have fallen already, despite yes. their bravery uh, of the people. But American involvement, American support has been absolutely uh, tremendous. But do you think this consensus, this bipartisan support, it, uh, is reflected in political opinion outside the Washington Beltway? Is it going to be reflected in the November fall elections in the US? Well, I think we've seen generally pretty broad and pretty uh, consistent bipartisan support for financial assistance to Ukraine thus far to the tune of uh, tens of billions of dollars. Congress has passed multiple uh, rounds of funding. Uh, I expect they will pass additional funding uh, at the end of this month when they enact the next uh, continuing resolution to fund the American government. Um, and I think that has been pretty consistent amongst Democrats and Republicans, although there are uh, outliers, especially, I think, in the Republican Party, uh, kind of the um, populist strain of the Republican Party, the, the, the sort of Trump-adjacent uh, members. It's interesting, Robert, in a sense, that Trump hasn't been very noisy about Ukraine and Russia. Is it because... He doesn't see a populist opportunity in it, or is he perhaps conflicted in his, uh, in his views about what Putin is doing? Well, I mean, he's had a lot of other uh, things going on recently yeah. with the yeah. <laughs> January 6th hearings, the FBI raid of uh, Mar-a-Lago. Um, All of which I, he brought on himself, but go on. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why he hasn't been more sort of outspoken. I can say... With respect to the midterms, uh, what we're seeing is much more, in spite of all that's going on with Ukraine, much more of a focus on domestic issues. Uh, you're seeing candidates talk about uh, the economy, inflation, gas prices, food prices, housing prices. Uh, you're seeing a lot of discussion about social issues, abortion, Roe versus Wade. Democrats are really touting 
uh, passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the landmark piece of legislation that passed uh, a little over a month ago. They're talking about infrastructure. So we haven't seen a lot of discussion about Ukraine or foreign policy generally uh, on the campaign trail. If it's not a salient issue and there's not so much in it for uh, either party politically, do you think we'll see the administration's actions being sustained? Are they going to maintain that sort of intensity of support for, for what the Ukrainian people are doing? I think that the administration is committed to supporting Ukraine. I think the thing that we need to keep an eye is out... Is it so absolutely committed to defeating Putin, which is not quite the same thing? Yes, I mean, I, I, I do, I do. And, and the, the proof is in the, the tens of billions of dollars uh, that, that we've sent, the tens of billion dollars that uh, we have yet to send. Um, I think the thing that is the real uh, pivotal point to start keeping an eye out for, if uh, Republicans uh, flip the House of Representatives in the midterms, you're gonna see a lot of those uh, really conservative, really populist sort of Trump adjacent uh, voices grow louder in the House of Representatives. That could complicate uh, the ability to get additional funding. And of course, we're already looking ahead to 2024. And uh, will Trump run again? Will a uh, Trump-like candidate emerge like a Ron DeSantis in, in Florida? DeSantis hasn't had a whole lot to say about foreign policy. He hasn't had a whole lot to say about uh, Ukraine. Uh, but he is, uh, in many ways, uh, operating in the same lane that Trump operates in. Uh, perhaps he's a little more strategic, a little more disciplined. Um, Sounds a little more dangerous, actually. But anyway, um, let's, let's come back to Europe because, Anna, I mean, the European elections obviously are much further away, but we've already had a taste of um, what we might expect um, in um, um, in Sweden, uh, we might get another sort of flavour of, of where public sentiment is going in Italy. Uh, I suspect there will be, um, if there's a change of government in Italy, I suspect we'll see uh, a greater ambivalence emerging uh, towards the war uh, and, and Russia. I mean, how do you expect these elections to, to, to play out, um, and what's the risk uh, of their outcome um, affecting Europe's stance towards the war and towards Russia? Let me start with the, the fact that, as you say, nationalism and populism is, is growing. So like you mentioned in Sweden, the Sweden Democrats were the second largest party. Italy, I feel like, will come up later in the discussion but the right-wing bloc is also set to win there. Uh, in Spain as well, although they'll have elections at the end of 2023, we already see that the right-wing box is third largest. So indeed, uh, populism is growing. I think the question is how well organized they will be at EU level. If we look at what happened in 2019 for the European Parliament elections, Populism also grew. A number of MEPs that were perhaps Eurosceptic also grew. Uh, but I think their policies were rooted on national 
um, concerns and they weren't as organized or they didn't manage as organized as well as other more established groups uh, like the, the center-right, center-left or, or the liberals. But it is true that those conversations as, are happening. Um, just yesterday in the news, Meloni was uh, supporting Vox in Spain, so we cannot uh, rule it out. Um, but regardless of the number of Eurosceptic MEPs in the European Parliament, I think we can expect it to be um, more divided, perhaps even more so than now. And so it's not enough to just focus on uh, center-right, center-left. Uh, you have to really have a much broader approach. Um, and on your question about support for Ukraine, uh, I think... EU unity really depends on, on two factors. And the first one you, you alluded to, which is changes in government. Um, so going to the example that you gave, uh, the leader of the right bloc um, in Italy has said uh, before being in government, which you know these things can change once you reach government, but that she supports the sanctions against Russia. The problem is that within her coalition, within, within that bloc, let's say, there are other views. Um, and Lega, for instance, is not as supportive. So there will be a struggle, I think an internal struggle, and then we'll see how that translates into the, the, the European arena. But I mean, let, let's be honest, there has been in Italy for a very long time an ambivalence towards Russia and Putin, which we haven't seen exhibited in other Western member states of the Union. That's true, but I think they'll have to pick a bit their battles. Uh, I think what will be interesting to see is how the balance of power changes in the European Council and how, I mean, as you can imagine, other EU leaders or member state leaders are not going to treat Meloni in the same way as, as they treated Draghi. And uh, so we'll have to see how that, how that develops and which fights they will pick. Uh, but f for now, I, I get the, the sense that they are being much more cautious, perhaps because they want to get more voters from the center. Um, but like I said, we'll have to see whether that really materializes once they reach government. Okay. Last question for all of you before I open it up to everyone else. Just quick fire. We're seeing a resurgence of transatlantic cooperation and unity. Does that spell many more opportunities for businesses and investors, or are there still underlying uncertainties and risks for business in the transatlantic uh, area? Who wants to go first? I'm happy to go first. Go first. So um, I see great opportunities for the sea region, Ukraine, and the wider uh, Eastern Partnership countries. Basically, this region found itself with the outbreak of the war, um, not only you know, facing a drop in investor sentiment, but also uh, at the periphery of logistic routes, economic growth, and, and, and supply chains. And once the situation stabilizes, mm -hmm. and we can already see that in, in a sense, then economic growth is going to return. Adding to this, uh, Ukraine's reconstruction is going to bring a lot of investment to the region, plus the promise of EU accession, even if it's not going to be a full-fledged uh, membership already alignment with EU rules. Um, the, the, the 
incoming EU funds and also participation in, in initiatives like Digital Europe or the roaming system is going to create a more favorable business investment. Plus, uh, the shock of the war and already the pandemic, it uh, uh, gave an extra push of the green and uh, digital transition. So I believe backed up with EU funds, these countries are going to need the know-how and even countries where the government has more nationalistic sentiment, they need joint ventures to, to, to get these investments rolling. So okay. I believe it's, it's a good opportunity. Robert, lots of opportunities for business and investors or continuing risks and uncertainties? I think both. I think um, there's a real opportunity for, uh, for leadership from industry, for engagement, uh, to influence some of these um, initiatives. We talked a little bit about the Trade and Technology Council, for example. That's a really good one. They're working on everything. They have a, you know, it's a work in progress, but I think they have a relatively ambitious agenda. Technology standards, interoperability, they're creating rules. All of that can't be done without buy-in from industry, engagement by industry. Uh, so there is a real opportunity there for industry to play a role in helping bridge the gap between the U.S. and the EU uh, and to further some of these initiatives and partnerships that I think uh, we're working on and that the Biden administration is reengaging. I think there's significant risk as well. Uh, and the thing that comes to mind first for me uh, from the U.S. perspective is 2024 uh, and who wins the White House. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, four years of what a Trump administration looks like. We've seen uh, how he approached longstanding allies and partners, uh, the norm breaking, uh, the uh, general unpredictability, and I would argue chaos. Uh, and that's a possibility again. Thanks for reminding us. Um. <laughs> if I may come in, I believe that Trump said that he would go meet Putin and struck a deal. Just. Yeah, thank you. Um, um, Anna, last of all, what do you see for business and investors coming out of this resurgence of transatlantic cooperation? So I think uh, Annika and Robert are a bit more optimistic. I also see risk, um, so I'm going to focus on that. But at, at member state level, because of some of the factors that we've been talking about, so. Uh, Italy, you know, countries that will have elections, also Spain, but also others, because it seems like, for instance, in, in the Netherlands with Rutte, things are also a, a little bit tense at the moment with the agriculture minister, minister stepping down um, because of plans to decrease nitrogen. Uh, and a plan, a, a study actually, investigation underway because of uh, the earthquakes in the north of the country due to uh, fracking. So I, I think developments at member state level should be um, watched closely because they will definitely um, define also the country's relationship and decisions at, at EU level. So did you link earthquakes to fracking? Well, you might just communicate that to Britain's new prime minister, whose <laughs> who's, who's answer to our energy crisis is to launch a massive program of fracking across the country. Um, it is a bit uh, what is being proven in Groningen, at least, that that is, uh, that that is the danger, yes. Hmm. Okay. Um, right. Who would like to 
raise some questions or raise some issues or ask some questions or uh, spread our repertoire further. I'm sure we haven't exhausted the supply of questions. Let's go here. Hello, good afternoon or good evening, everyone. I'm Agnès uh, Leroux, just joined Boeing. And actually, maybe to follow up on what you've just said, um, in the EU-US uh, relationship and the transatlantic relationship, what do we make of the UK? Um, do you have any views on that uh, with the first, with the new prime minister? Um, you know, what, where are we going there? Well, the policy of the new British prime minister seems to be to treat the EU and the US equally, with equal disdain, um, uh, in respect of Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Protocol, where, as you know, the policy and position of the United States administration uh, is very, very firmly uh, in defence of both relevant treaties, the original Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which I implemented in 1999, um, and secondly, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which is our post-Brexit agreement that the UK struck with the EU. Um, neither the United States nor the EU wants Britain unilaterally to tear up the provisions relating to trade between Britain and Northern Ireland, which are a, a consequence of our desire to create trading arrangements which do not reinsert a physical border right across the island of Ireland, because that would you know, just stimulate just fresh tensions and disputes all over again. Um, and we've therefore got to find a way of implementing the existing Northern Ireland Protocol you know, in a proportionate, sensible, and I would say softer way. But scrapping it, as our new Prime Minister wants to do, which the US and the EU opposes equally, um, uh, is, I think, a, a pretty reckless uh, course to follow. So... Britain, in a sense, is a spectator uh, to what the US and the EU is, is doing uh, through the TTC. Um, uh, but that's not the priority. The priority seems to be uh, to uh, uh, disrupt uh, our arrangements by driving a coach and horses through the Northern Ireland protocol and arrangements, which I hope we can head off. Another question, another issue at the back there. Thank you. I wonder if um, Lord Manderson and the rest of the panel could say a few words about uh, how the growing um, tendency towards unilateralism within the EU, not within the US, but within the EU, is going to play into this relationship. As we see EU, you mentioned it yourself earlier on, um, these open strategic autonomy. And, uh, of course, autonomy, uh, even if it's open, is inimical to cooperation, is the opposite of cooperation. And, and perhaps it's, uh, there's an imitation going on of the EU. Uh, EU is imitating US and becoming more unilateral and exerting its own power. Um, so while interests are aligned, there may be alliance with the US, but as soon as interests are not aligned anymore, 
um, isn't there going to be a tension in the relationship due to the growing unilateralism on the EU side? Thank you. Well, of course, one person's unilateralism is another person's resilience. Uh, and to reflect President Macron's view, uh, the more resilient Europe is and the stronger we are, the better able we will be to become an equal underlying partner with and to the United States. But first of all, we have to stand on our own two feet in a whole variety of different ways uh, so that we can stand equally alongside the United States in the transatlantic partnership. Got that? Um, and I think there's a germ of truth in that, personally. Um, I'm not sure that I would sort of take it to the stretch it too far, uh, but I think it has a germ of truth. What, anyone, any views over here about European unilateralism? I mean, I think in a way there's unilateralism on, on both sides and it's just uh, there will be points of convergence and, and divergence, uh, but I think they will remain uh, key partners in that sense. When, when you look at views on, on China, for example, um, I think the US has very much uh, understood that they cannot look to the EU as a close partner when it comes when it comes to that issue um, because of internal differences and in, in views of how actually um, the EU and China relationship should be. Um, so I think they will just pick um, the topics or the, the issues where they will work closer together and those that they don't. We haven't really gone into China at all. Does anyone want to talk about China, raise China? I mean, the point surely about China is that in developing a powerful, sort of medium-term um, sanctions regime directed at Russia as a result of Ukraine, which was never going to have a sort of convulsive effect on Russia in the short term, but could seriously harm its technological capabilities in the medium and longer term because of the cutting off of uh, supply of technological know-how or kit uh, to uh, the Russian manufacturing sector. Is that not exactly the template that the United States wants to apply to China? that we can't stop or convulse China straight away, but we can weaken or slow up uh, China uh, by cutting off technological advantages, supplies or, or whatever to China uh, and have their growth in the technological field and therefore, therefore more widely in the economic sphere at least slow down quite considerably. Now, is Europe signing up to that? Um, I can say that in Central Europe, there are a few countries who would like to pursue more value-based foreign policy, and uh, they choose values Taiwan. Values-based? Values-based, yes. Which and, countries are um, Czech Republic, Lithuania, they chose uh, Taiwan as a main partner um, in the region, and uh, they are, in turn, rewarded by Taiwan um, um, earmarking 
some investment funds for these countries and even thinking about uh, positioning some semiconductor manufacturing facilities there. So uh, this actually um, uh, follows the argument from the US side that pick your partners better, choose your partners more carefully. Yeah. Robert, what do you think the U.S. expects of Europe in respect of China? Well, I mean, there's certainly been a growing hawkishness among both parties uh, on China and the United States. Uh, it's a huge focus. One of the reasons, um, for example, why uh, a certain faction of the Republican Party has opposed funding for Ukraine is because they think we should be more focused on China. So it is a prism, I think, through which um, we view uh, partnerships. Uh, some of the things the TTC is working on, semiconductor uh, supply chains, uh, supply chain resilience, uh, is, is all sort of in that, um, uh, colored by that, that view of China and the way that we look at China. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, there are different views. I think the U.S. is probably more hawkish, um, but views the EU as a, uh, a strategic partner and how we're going to approach it. I was in D.C. Um, the week before the last, before the Queen died and I came home, but the impression I got, I must say, from talking to administration officials is that they view what we're doing with and to Russia over Ukraine as a dry run for what we might do with and to China certainly if China makes a move on Taiwan. I mean, did I read that correctly? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think, listen, there's, you're hearing uh, the president very forcefully, uh, I think, and clearly respond to hypothetical questions about what happens if, uh, if China invades Taiwan. Um, the administration will say that the, position hasn't changed. Uh, and so I, I don't know if uh, they're ready to go there yet, um, but uh, it certainly, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you may be hearing that uh, in discussions. I have to say I've spoken to two retired generals and one retired admiral, all of whom occupied very high positions of responsibility in the US military. And I did not detect a, an ounce of enthusiasm uh, for military action by the United States in the event of a move by China on Taiwan. So that might suggest that, that they will, in the event of China making such a move, uh, want to look to economic sanctions rather than military intervention. But that's pure speculation on my part. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably... Um, I think that's probably a more likely starting point. Um, but I think, uh, you know, you've, you've definitely heard the president, uh, I think, yeah, I did. go out on a limb several times, um, even though the administration's official position hasn't changed. But I think economic sanctions would uh, probably be a, a more likely uh, starting point. Having said that, I wouldn't anticipate a move by China on Taiwan in the short term, although I know there are others who say, well, they're much better to do it in the short term because that would, they'll do so when everyone is unprepared and not thinking they're going to make such a move. Do it quickly uh, before the rest of the world can mobilize. 
I still think it's unlikely. I think President Xi's got enough on his hands, actually, uh, in his disastrous COVID management policies without extending his uh, area of uh, activity to Taiwan. Now, before we finish, any last questions or points anyone would like to raise over here and over there very quickly? Thank you. Good evening, Catherine Glastra. Uh, two questions. One with regard to Taiwan. I'm happy that China came up. Is the EU getting ready uh, for economic reactions uh, to China, um, making a move on Taiwan? I'm thinking in particular on trade defense instruments, autonomous trade measures. We're working intensely on the anti-coercion instrument, for example. So how do you see that? And second question, TTC EU-US, but there's also the TTC with India, um, which also is linked somehow to the China question. So are we trying to approach India in a different way and making interesting offers in order to have another ally in the Indo-Pacific region or in the wider region? And is that the smart thing to do? Because if we look at how FTA uh, negotiations are progressing, if you compare UK and EU, we, don't, we see a big, a big gap. So I'd be very interested to hear your opinions on that. Thanks. Well, I wouldn't hold your breath for a content full, meaningful and substantial free trade agreement between anyone and India. Uh, just don't hold your breath because you, you'll die for waiting uh, for that uh, to come about. Um, uh, I suspect if the UK does complete an agreement, it will be more optical than substantive, uh, frankly. Um, and on, in relation to India's wider geopolitical role, well, you know, they're an obvious country because of their size and population and economic growth and geographical location to try to leave her onto our side. Uh, and I think it's a perfectly sort of sensible and respectable uh, courtship to make. But please always bear in mind that at the end of the day, actually at the beginning, in the middle and the end of the day, uh, India uh, will be looking after itself. Uh, it will uh, uh, hunt with the hounds and run with the hares, uh, depending which suitor offers them what uh, each day. You know, I, if you had to choose uh, amongst a, a number of last remaining allies that you wanted to go into the jungle and fight with, I don't think India would be top of your list. Okay, I say that with the great, greatest love and affection uh, for, for, for India, but I don't think they're going to be there quite as we wish. Um, um, Global Council geopolitical specialists at the front here looking at me a little... Anything to add? Um, I think, I mean, on China, um, are we ready for economic sanctions against China in the event of the making move on Taiwan? Uh, I think there is mounting pressure. Um, just uh, earlier today, actually, there was a group of MEPs and MPs urging the Commission to launch negotiations on an investment agreement with Taiwan. Uh, but I think the Commission is being pulled in different directions. Um, for now, I think my sense would be that not. Um, but I don't know whether anyone else has. Uh, what do you think? Are we ready to join economic sanctions 
against China in the event of a conflict over Taiwan? Well, it was only half a year ago with um, the dispute between China pressuring Lithuania about them opening a trade representation of Taiwan. Um, and the EU chose to go to the WTO. Um, of course, since then, there's been some new... Um, um, well, to be truthful, they were rather unhappy about Lithuania's move in the first place, but then decided to stand up to, Russian, uh, to Chinese bullying. Well, um, Chinese bullying was really harming uh, the economic interests of not only Lithuania, but, but also other countries who've been supplying, for example, automobile parts, uh, uh, German companies uh, producing them in Lithuania and then uh, blocked uh, from um, uh, entering China. So, so there was uh, a great pressure to, to, to stand up. Yeah. Not quite the same as taking a decision to mount comprehensive economic sanctions against China, however. Last question at the back. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Niels Poel from Klepa, the European Association of Automotive Suppliers. Um, if you allow me, I have one more question about the Trade and Technology Council, because I think you alluded to it, no? I mean, there are a lot of political objectives that are very similar. We have a lot of suppliers that are both in the US and the EU, and when we talk to each other, we really see a very similar picture on the raw materials, which we want to diversify, the semiconductors, um, export controls, uh, I think. but. Um, yeah, what is your? For us, it's very difficult to get a grasp if this political agreement that there should be alignment and maybe uh, coordination, um, if this is also materializing at the technical level, and whether there really is. What What is your sense of? Are there areas where you expect maybe a bit more progress than than in other areas? Uh, and and how do you, uh, yeah, see the, the progress? I'm going to ask so Conor Darcy to respond to this because. He heads our technology practice. He follows the TTC. Um, I mean, I think the. Sorry, I'm not quite see who asked the question. I the, should stand um, up before you come. No, I think our hi, sorry. I think our assessment is essentially that the greatest. I think, as you alluded to, the greatest chance of progress is going to be in those areas that are clearly linked to the common interest between the EU and the US. So. Uh, on the one hand, we're not expecting to see a huge amounts of progress in areas where uh, there are, we're talking about sort of areas where there's huge tension between the EU and the US, obviously things like competition policy, antitrust, content moderation, so on and so forth. So those areas that we're talking about are going to be things around coordination to do with things like uh, uh, semiconductor supply chains and so on and so forth. Whether we will see concrete technical agreements, I think, is very much open I think as it's been framed by Vice President Vestager, the, the third summit, which what is at the end of the year or the start of next, is sort of where we need to see the crunch and whether those technical agreements are really going to bear out or not. I think I would personally be pretty sceptical ahead of that third summit that we're going to see much progress beyond what we've seen already. Um, the second summit's lesson seemed to be that a lot of working groups were being launched to investigate various different elements and so on and so forth. And I suspect that that is essentially where we're going to see more of the same. So a lot of, a lot of platitudes, uh, some concrete areas where there will be further cooperation and further agreements to work together. But if we're talking about a grand spanking new agreement on some form of technical standards, I think we're probably going to be left wanting. Okay, let, let me last of all ask Erin Cadell, who heads our American team and office, 
uh, are we expecting hard and fast agreements or a series of platitudes? A series of platitudes. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think to add a, add a further color to that and, and to build on Conan's points, I think that it's, uh, and to, to Robert's points earlier, there are a lot of other things that we're worried about in the U.S. Bef before the TTC, uh, the midterms in, in November being the, the biggest of those, uh, the domestic situation with inflation and the social wars that are being fought on a daily basis between Republicans and Democrats. That just takes takes a precedent. We're, we've been in touch with many of the many of the, the folks uh, working on the TTC at state and USTR, and they're certainly working working hard at it. Uh, but uh, these are pretty big, complex issues. So I think probably getting some uh, wins on the board uh, with things like semiconductor supply chains and so forth. I, it just feels like uh, again, this was something that was Europe's idea first, and we definitely agreed to it. But definitely more on the on the platitude side than real hard uh, hard agreements, particularly with this third summit coming up late this year. Okay, there we are. There we have it. Let's let's finish and enjoy um, the extraordinarily spacious uh, <laughs> uh, office and arrangements and hospitality and endless drink and food that Global Council offers in Brussels. I can't wait to come back. Um, thank you all very much indeed. Uh, please enjoy Tom's hospitality. <laughs> thank you.